Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron Brake. How are you doing today, Aaron? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. We're advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now today, Aaron and I are going to be concluding our three-part discussion on Willie Parker's recent book, Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. In the first part, we looked at Parker's scientific statements. In the second part, we looked at his philosophical statements. And today we're going to look at his theological statements and how Parker relates biblical teaching to his work doing abortions. So one of the more interesting things in the book, and I'm using the term interesting loosely here, is that uh, Parker apparently fancies himself as a modern-day Apostle Paul, though he doesn't seem to accept Paul's admonition not to forsake the assembling together, as had become the habit of some. On page 15 of his book, Parker talks about the woman caught in adultery and how Jesus told the people who wanted to stone her, if any of you are without sin, go and cast the first stone. Of course, what Parker fails to mention is that Jesus also told her, go and sin no more. In other words, leave your life of adultery. Parker's Jesus is a Jesus who does not judge the sins of man, and boy is he in for a shock. Additionally, on page 69 of his book, Parker tells us that he offers a counter-narrative to the disapproval of Christianity. He says, quote, that God gave every woman gifts and the agency to realize those gifts, and that nothing about choosing to terminate a pregnancy or to delay childbearing puts a woman outside of God's love, end quote. Of course, this modern-day Apostle Paul also seems to have forgotten that Paul wrote in Romans, quote, Shall we sin so that grace can abound? Certainly not. End quote. Parker is no philosopher. He doesn't seem to understand that having the volition, or the agency, to do something does not mean that we are justified in making any choice we make just because we have that agency. 
not only does Parker humbly refer to himself as a modern-day Apostle Paul, but also likens himself to the Good Samaritan in performing abortions. Of course, the whole question behind the parable of the Good Samaritan is the question, who is my neighbor? Well, if the unborn are human beings, then they are the weakest and most defenseless members of the human community, the most vulnerable of our neighbors. Now, Parker is just begging the question and assuming the unborn are not human beings and therefore not our neighbors. Uh, loving our neighbor and being a good Samaritan certainly can't include killing them. Can you imagine the good Samaritan uh, coming upon a pregnant woman in the road and killing her unborn child as a solution to her problems? Well, in Parker's perverse reading of scripture, that's exactly what he would do if the woman so desired. He says at the bottom of page 37, I decided to exercise Christian compassion, not by proxy, but with my own capable hands. Wow. So that raises the question, compassion for whom? Certainly not our unborn neighbors who are killed in the process. So according to Parker, he is exercising Christian compassion with his own capable hands by killing the unborn in the womb. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because if we actually go back to Scripture and read the Good Samaritan account for ourselves, the Good Samaritan comes upon a, a man who had been beaten within an inch of his life and needs medical attention. And so the Good Samaritan is actually about helping someone, not about killing somebody. Exactly. What's interesting is that Parker is not the only abortion choice advocate who uses the Good Samaritan to make his case. I, I plan on talking more about Judith Jarvis Thompson and her essay, A Defense of Abortion, later on in the show, you know, with, with the, the three of us, uh, you, Nathan, and myself. But uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson is also another person who actually uses the Good Samaritan in an attempt to justify a right to abortion. And I don't know what Thompson's religious leanings are, if she's an atheist, but it's just an extreme misreading of the text to get from the Good Samaritan story to we ought to be giving women abortions and killing their unborn child. Now, in chapter 7, Parker attempts to make a more detailed biblical case for supporting abortion rights. He argues that the Bible does not contain the word abortion in it. Of course, this is just the old argument from silence fallacy. The Bible not expressly condemning it does not mean the Bible condones it. After all, the, the Bible does not condemn me from, uh, from cutting the brakes in somebody's car or pushing them into a shark tank. But yet, I think that we can take from biblical values that it would be wrong for me to do those things. Uh, so the Bible not expressly condemning it does not mean that the Bible condones it. What we do have is one of the earliest Christian documents, the Didache, which is said to be the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, expressly forbidding both abortion and infanticide. What the Didache says in chapter 2, verse 2, is, You shall do no murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit sodomy, you shall not commit fornication, you shall not steal, you shall not use magic, you shall not use... Filtries, you shall not procure abortion nor commit infanticide, you shall not covet your neighbor's goods. In fact, the Didache says that there are two ways, one of life and one of death, and it calls these particular evils the way of death. So even if the Bible doesn't expressly forbid abortion, one of the earliest Christian documents has no two ways about it. 
So to claim that Christianity is consistent with support for abortion is historically and theologically confused. The Bible also says you shall not murder in Exodus 20.13 and Deuteronomy 5.17 that child sacrifice had never even entered God's mind to command, Jeremiah 19.5, and that Jesus had high regard for children, Matthew 18.6 and Matthew 19.14. That God would support abortion to make our lives easier is a concept that is foreign to Scripture. For Parker to appeal to this fallacious argument is, again, ironic, especially when we consider that a century ago, racists attempted to argue that blacks were not human based on the silence of Scripture also. Uh, Scott Klusendorf points out uh, in his book, The Case for Life, in reference to the 1852 book by Josiah Priest uh, called Bible Defense of Slavery, some even went so far as to deny that black people had souls. But that was flawed because the Bible doesn't have to mention every specific ethnicity or nationality in order for us to know that all human beings are valuable and created in the image of God. And by the same token, the Bible doesn't have to mention every single stage of development of human life in order for us to know that the unborn and newborns and toddlers and teenagers are all valuable human beings created in the image of God also. If they are human beings, then it is wrong to treat them unjustly. No further proof from Scripture is necessary. So ironically, what racists did a century ago in order to dehumanize blacks, Parker does today in order to dehumanize the unborn. A better explanation for the Bible's silence, specifically on the abortion issue, is simply to recognize that abortion was unthinkable to ancient Jews, especially when we recognize their beliefs that human beings are intrinsically valuable, created in the image of God, that children are considered a gift from God, and that barrenness was considered a curse. In that kind of culture, abortion becomes unthinkable, just as female infanticide was unthinkable, though that was practiced by surrounding cultures and never specifically condemned in Scripture either. Yeah, and so in order for an argument from silence to not be fallacious, you would have to make a case that we would expect Jesus and or the biblical writers to write about abortion, which no one... I've seen has made that case, and as you were just saying, uh, there's good reason to suppose that they have no, they would have no reason to write about it because, sim simply put, uh, the Jews and ancient Christians were not aborting their offspring and were not at risk for aborting their offspring because children have always been seen as a blessing to the ancient Jews and to Christians. In fact, when when the ancient Romans and, and Greeks would put their children out, their infants and uh, out into the elements to die, it was the Christians who were going around and saving all of these children because they considered children to be blessings from God. And so uh, ancient Jews and ancient tr Christians just were not at risk for aborting their offspring, and so there was no need for a teaching about it. But even then, considering that Scripture considers unborn children to be children, just like children outside the womb, then there is really no need to have teachings against abortion, because certainly teachings against committing murder and teachings against shedding innocent blood would also apply to the unborn as well. So now, Parker refers to the passage in Exodus in which if two men are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, if her child dies, the offender is to pay the husband a fine. The passage is found in Exodus 21, 22 through 25, and it says, quote, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, end quote. So Parker uses this to illustrate that the loss of the fetus was not a capital crime. 
I have responded to this passage elsewhere, but just briefly, what is in mind here is not miscarriage, but premature birth. If the two men are fighting, the baby is born prematurely and there is no further harm, the man must pay the husband a fine. But if there is loss of life, either the mother's or the child's, then the offender was to be put to death. Yeah, this is found on page 118 of his book, and this is common throughout Parker's book. He makes assertions rather than arguments and doesn't actually quote or make reference to the biblical passages that are supposedly in support of his view. He just says it matter-of-factly as if his views are correct and unassailable. So according to Parker on page 127, there is no right interpretation of Scripture, yet he presumes to give us here uh, the right interpretation of Scripture. Now, besides the fact that this passage is referring to an accidental death and not a willful death, such as in abortion, when the unborn is willfully and intentionally killed, Clinton already read what the passage actually says. So a biblical case can be made that both the mother and the child are covered by the law of retribution in the Old Testament. Parker also alleges that throughout Jewish scripture, a fetus becomes human only when its head emerges from the birth canal. Now, aside from not supporting his claim with any sources, this is absurd in the face of it. It may be different in other Jewish texts, but at least in the Torah, the same word for child is used to refer to either unborn or born children. The text makes no differentiation between children. In fact, what Parker also seems to fail to recognize is that while the texts of the Old Testament were originally given to us by Jews, Christians tend to interpret many of the texts differently than Jews do. Uh, Jews don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and yet Christians do believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, they interpret many of the, or actually they interpret all of the, all of the prophecies in the Old Testament as pointing toward Jesus. And there are other verses which which are interpreted differently than the Jews do. And so it doesn't really add to his case, even if Parker is correct about the Jewish scriptures saying that the fetus only becomes human when its head emerges from the birth canal, that's not a slam-dunk argument against, against Christian interpretations of the text. He has to give arguments for why that interpretation is correct. And again, he doesn't support his claim with any sources, so, uh, so nobody is able to actually check his research and see if he's, uh, if he's accurately representing the, the facts of the matter. So it's just, it's just not a very strong argument to argue that Jews interpret the, the scriptures one way, especially since there are Jews today who are pro-life. Yeah, Parker also seems to be oblivious to the fact that we have New Testament passages as well, which argue against his view. For example, in Luke 1, 41-44, we read, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, the word baby that's used there in the Greek is referring to John the Baptist in the womb, and it is the same word used for a child after it is born. For example, as found in Luke 2.16, where Jesus is called a baby, same word, lying in the manger. So we have the same word in the Greek being used for both uh, the unborn and the newborn. Yeah, and so the, the ancient Hebrew 
and Greek don't make any distinctions between an unborn and born child. Uh, both are considered human children, and both are and both use the same Hebrew and Greek words when referring to both. In fact, there are, there are some Christians who will use some texts as proof texts for the pro-life cause, such as the verse in Jeremiah in which God says, "You know, I, I knew you before I formed you in the womb," and then certain verses in Psalms where the the psalmist says that you knit me together in my mother's womb, but from some pro-life people, I've heard that they consider that the passage that you just read in Luke to be the strongest biblical case for human life beginning at fertilization, because we have third trimester John the Baptist leaping in the womb at first trimester Jesus's approach with his uh, mom Mary and uh, John the Baptist's mom Elizabeth. They, so a, a lot of pro-life people consider that to actually be the strongest biblical case, or the strongest biblical passage you can use. So on top of on top of all of these verses in which Parker really just misinterprets them pretty egregiously, it, it also seems to seems to be the case that Parker is not a Christian in any meaningful sense. And now, just to be clear, I'm not the kind of person to go around trying to judge any particular Christian's walk with Christ. I, I believe that a person can be a legitimate Christian and be pro-choice. I believe you can be a Christian and, and support evolution. I believe, you know, all of these political or or scientific or what, whatever kinds of disagreements, Christianity leaves these questions open, and so they can be disagreed on by people of goodwill. But I make this claim just based on, on Parker's own words. For example, Parker actually worships a god of his own creation. He doesn't worship the god of the Bible. Throughout the book, for example, he uses phrases such as the God I worship or the God I believe in. Now, this is likely because he doesn't believe there is any right interpretation of Scripture, as he says on page 127, and as uh, Aaron mentioned earlier, and that there is no such thing as absolute morality, which he says on page 195, which we actually talked about last week in, in our second part. However, Parker's beliefs land him square outside of orthodoxy, meaning that he is not a Christian in any meaningful sense. Of course, this won't prevent people like Gloria Steinem and Cecile Richards from holding him up and saying, see, you can be a Christian and pro-choice. Parker states on page 16, I do not claim to be like Jesus, only to emulate him as best I can. He goes on to say that performing abortions is his calling and life's work, uh, hence the title of the book. I'm not sure which Jesus Parker is emulating, but it certainly is not the Jesus of the Bible. Is he really serious in thinking that Jesus Christ would consider suctioning the limbs off human beings in the womb or poisoning the live with saline solution a, a Christian vocation? Like Jesus would consider this a worthy calling. The, the same Jesus who said, let the little children come to me. Parker simply creates God and Jesus in his own image. The God and Jesus that Parker believes in doesn't exist. Whenever someone says, well, the God I believe in wouldn't do such and such, one possibility is always that maybe you've got the wrong God or wrong idea of who God is. And if there is no right interpretation of Scripture, again, as Parker says, it makes one wonder why we should listen to him when he purports to tell us uh, what Scripture says about God and Jesus. Right. That, that makes all of his claims suspect, because if there's no right interpretation of Scripture then we're free to just reject Parker's arguments from Scripture because they, because we don't agree with them or because they don't sit well with us. Now, on page 55 of his book, Parker writes the following, quote, God is love and God does not judge, but God's people can become overly pious and haughty and they can become inflexible, end quote. It's astounding that anyone who thinks himself a Christian can believe that God doesn't judge, 
Would you try and tell that to Ananias and Sapphira, to Tyre and Sidon, to Sodom and Gomorrah, to the Canaanites, to the Amalekites? The list goes on and on. Hebrews 9.27 states, quote, It is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. End quote. All over scripture we're told that God will judge the quick and the dead. What Bible has Parker been reading? It's also worth noting that despite the fact Parker thinks God doesn't judge, and he condemns pro-life people as being, quote, overly pious and haughty, end quote, Parker has no qualms with judging pro-life people ten ways to Sunday, going so far as to bear false witness against pro-life people. But maybe he doesn't think the Ten Commandments are very important either. Yes, according to Parker, on page 16, he states, To believe in a loving God is to refuse to stand in judgment of any fellow mortal. But as you mentioned, Clinton, this doesn't stop Parker from making the judgment that all pro-life people are white, racist, misogynistic males who want to control women's bodies. Well, well right. In fact, this whole idea about judging, you know, Matthew 7.1 is probably the most most quoted and misquoted verse in the Bible where it says, judge not lest you also be judged. And unfortunately, someone like Parker, who calls himself a Christian, doesn't think that we should be judging other people. But that's not what scripture teaches at all. And it's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that we shouldn't judge hypocritically. If we're going to judge somebody, make sure that we're not suffering from that same thing. Because, because you know, what we say isn't reliable. If If I can't um, if if I'm struggling with a particular sin and I don't know how to get out of it, I have no business trying to tell someone else to stop sinning or how to get out of their sin. And so, of course, we're called to judge. It's just a patently absurd thing for someone who calls himself a Christian to believe. Yeah, and just in wrapping this up, a couple other problems in Parker's theology. He makes reference in his book to being influenced by both the prosperity gospel and liberation theology, both of which are unbiblical. Liberation theology essentially being Marxism in the church and the prosperity gospel being a you know health and wealth, name and claim it, a perversion of the gospel. Parker also states on page 208, uh, this interesting section, a quote, If God is in everything and everyone, then God is as much in the woman making a decision to terminate a pregnancy as in her Bible, unquote. This just seems bizarre to me. It sounds very pantheistic. You know, God is all and all is God. And one wonders why, if Parker believes God really is in everything, why is God also not in the unborn uh, who is killed in abortion? It seems Parker believes God is in everything, including the mother, but doesn't want to extend that sacredness to the unborn who's killed in the womb. Yeah, that's a good point. That's another pretty blatant contradiction that Parker has. God is in everything and everyone, but he's not in the unborn. So we've been talking about Willie Parker's recent book, Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. This was the third part in that series. First, two weeks ago, we talked about his scientific claims. Last week, we talked about his philosophical claims. And today, we've been talking about his theological claims. So I'd like to thank you for listening. And and Aaron, I'd like to thank you again for joining me to talk about this book and to analyze and critique it a bit. If you appreciate what we've been talking about, then we would just ask that you share this around social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent, and rate and review us on our Facebook page and on iTunes. Now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week, on top of all the other work that I do. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. 
I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, you can also indicate that in the notes section. Donations are also tax deductible. Now, next week, I'm going to be back from Texas. Um, In fact, I'll probably already be back on the day that this episode airs. But next week, we're actually going to be talking about end-of-life topics like euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide because of my recent debate with Matt Dillahunty. Nathan wanted to talk a little bit about my debate and how it went, and so we're going to be covering uh, stepping out of the abortion issue a little bit and talking a little bit about these end-of-life topics. So uh, on behalf of Aaron, I'd like to thank you again for joining us, and we will see you next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.